Hi, Pitchfork Economics listeners. I'm Ashley, one of the producers here at the show. We're taking a break this summer, which means no new episodes. But in the meantime, we're re-releasing some of our favorite past episodes, like this one from September 2020 about the ethical limits of the market with professor and author Elizabeth Anderson. Nick and Goldie still rave about their interview with Elizabeth to this day, so here's hoping that you love it as much as they do. And just as a friendly reminder, follow or subscribe to the podcast wherever you listen, and please leave us a five-star rating or review. There's millions of different ways to write the rules of the market, and you could write the rules so that instead of empowering just a handful of billionaires and people at the top, they can actually be empowering the vast majority of people. Hear that, Nick? They could write the rules to empower me, not just you. (laughs) I know, I know. From the home offices of Civic Ventures in downtown Seattle, this is Pitchfork Economics with Nick Hanauer, the best place to get the truth about who gets what and why. I'm Nick Hanauer, founder of Civic Ventures. I'm David Goldstein, senior fellow at Civic Ventures. So, Nick, uh, what is the label that I use to describe you as my employer? My plutocratic overlord. Well, my benevolent plutocratic (laughs) overlord. That's right. Benevolent plutocratic overlord. Overlord. And uh, you laugh at that, but you admit there's, there's quite a bit of truth in that statement. I am benevolent. I am plutocrat. And I am your overlord. You are, and this gets to the heart of the conversation we're having today, today exactly, uh, with the uh, political philosopher Elizabeth Anderson. You know, uh, I don't know, a year and a half ago, I read her book, and it just immediately jumped out at me. Yes, yes, this is exactly the world that I see, where she describes, right. uh, in her words, the communist dictatorships in our midst, and uh, by communist dictators, uh, she's talking about people like you. Yeah, and we are incredibly fortunate to be able to talk to Elizabeth today, who is one of the foremost political philosophers in the world. And her book, Private Government, How Employers Rule Our Lives and Why We Don't Talk About It, really is a, you know, a, a super important contribution to today's discourse about uh, political philosophy, but also about economics, how we think about the economy, how we think about relations within the economy, how we think about the role of workers and capital within the economy, all of that stuff. And, and it should be, yeah. go ahead. I, I was saying how we, how we think and talk about these things and, and how they, they help uh, reinforce the status quo. That's right. And with that, let's talk to Elizabeth Anderson. Elizabeth Anderson. I'm John Dewey, Distinguished Professor of Philosophy and Women's Studies at University of Michigan in Ann Arbor. I recently uh, wrote a book called Private Government, How Employers Rule Our Lives and Why We Don't Talk About It. And I'm currently writing a book that's uh, going to be coming out of Cambridge University Press on the history of the Protestant work ethic. So it's a kind of a follow-on book that's explaining some of the historical roots of our current labor regime and alternatives to it. Uh, That sounds fascinating. 
so I have I have to tell you, Elizabeth, that when I I read your book, Private Government, it immediately appealed to me because I've I've my whole life I've had this this deep intuition that that wage labor salaried work was both unnatural and and fundamentally unfree and and so it, you can you can sorry Nick yeah <laughs> and I can and as as Goldie's employer I can affirm that he is an insubordinate uh, <laughs> difficult jerk. <laughs> So, so if you could just, uh, I, I guess, just start off by uh, giving us a, a summary of your your thesis here. Yes. So, in private government, I'm really doing two things. One is trying to give people a sense of the original appeal of free markets and how that was an ideal that was formed before the Industrial Revolution, and then how the Industrial Revolution just changed everything and turned our current beliefs into free markets into something rather different than what they originally wanted to be. So if you read Adam Smith, Tom Paine, other pre-Industrial Revolution figures, they saw free markets as a path to practically universal self-employment. And the reason for that is that they thought that if you really had markets free, so you don't have any chartered monopolies from the government and you get rid of all this government corruption, which is rigging the system in favor of the rich, and you break up the gigantic Lord's estates, uh, that is, you have to eliminate the inheritance laws that keep them consolidated, that property would devolve to the most efficient producer, which would be the person who earns 100% of the fruits of his labor, that is the self-employed worker. And so you'd have a society of yeoman farmers and basically self-employed business people and wage labor would be an extremely marginal feature of such an economy. That ideal was carried forth in the United States all the way up to the Civil War. It was basically Abraham Lincoln's platform Free labor, free labor. It wasn't just an anti-slavery platform, although it was that. It was all of, also about giving away chunks of capital out West, that is the Homestead Acts, precisely to empower a yeoman farmer class that doesn't have to take orders from anybody else. And that was the concept of freedom that was originally linked to the market, is that if you are self-employed, you don't have to answer to anybody else. You are directing yourself. Or as Lincoln said, God gave everybody a head and two hands. And I take it that means that he intended that that head govern those two hands, <laughs> right? <laughs> uh, it was an ideal of, of, of individual autonomy and emancipation. But what happened was with the Industrial Revolution, huge concentrations of capital, economies of scale made it such that the very small business person just got economically wiped out. The small craftsmen, the yellow farmers, they just got killed. And, you know, what arose was the modern employment relationship, the wage labor relationship, where workers basically don't have any property. They work with their hands that they own themselves. Instead, they have to get a job from an employer and work for a wage. And I'm not so much concerned in this book with the fact that they're getting paid a wage rather than say 
returns on capital. What I'm interested in is what are the social relationships within the firm? And my argument is the vast majority of firms, those relationships are functionally a dictatorship. The boss runs the company and everybody has to follow whatever the boss says, or they get fired. And that's my problem is that any kind of dictatorial structure is a structure in which it leaves people open to all kinds of vulnerable to all kinds of abuse. And you point out that that Adam Smith, uh, who's essentially the patron saint of neoliberalism, didn't anticipate this, that that when he writes about the pin factory, the famous pin factory, it wasn't really a factory at all. It It was a workshop. Right. I mean, they were not. He did worry that in the modern pin factory, first of all, it only had 10 workers in it. So it's a very small operation. And he did worry that there was a kind of micro division of labor within the pin factory, which was stultifying to workers because one worker might just spend his entire day fitting, you know, heads on the top of pins or just sharpening the point, right? Endlessly repeated a single operation. And he worried that that de-skilling would stultify workers and, and really make for a less fulfilling life. But, you know, in principle, you could reorganize a 10-person workshop in a different way, more collaboratively among the workers. They could rotate positions so that everyone eventually learns all the skills to make the whole pin, right? And then it wouldn't be so stultifying. He didn't think that, but there were later thinkers like John Stuart Mill and even Karl Marx, by the way, who I think had such a system in mind. So Elizabeth, let's let's take a step back because uh, I really want to explore for those who haven't read your book, I think the really persuasive argument you make about why markets were identified with egalitarianism, you know, a long time ago. That that I think it's really worth just reflecting on the fact that 300 years ago people lived in highly authoritarian circumstances, that everyone except the king was subject to someone, that whether it was parishioners to the church or uh, indentured servants to their masters or women to men or uh, vassals to kings, whatever it was. I mean, like people, everyone got pushed around in an authoritarian way, in an arbitrary way, and you were at the mercy of people in a very profound way. And so the idea of markets comes along and where someone is essentially masterless, and that was an incredibly appealing idea. Tell folks about that. I mean, I think it's really worth sort of underscoring that. This part of the story goes back actually to the mid 17th century. There were all kinds of economic disruptions that were taking place in England at the time, which uh, created a group of people who were called at the time masterless men because you have perfect competition. Nobody has any power over anyone else. They don't have any market power. As soon as you sell your goods on the market, it doesn't mean that you are selling your independence to somebody else. You just get some cash and you can do with it what you want. So as long as the market is perfectly competitive and the people who are meeting each other in the market are all independent small business people, 
then market relations are a plausible model of how you could have a free society of equals where everyone gets what they need from other people just by meeting at these markets and trading what they're producing for what everybody else is producing that they want. And and by equality, you don't mean, you know, equal in in wealth. Uh, you mean so, social equals. Right. They're social equals in the sense that everybody recognizes the party they're interacting with as somebody who has rights. You have to persuade them uh, to give up their stuff for what you're offering. You can't just order them to hand it over. And you can't order them around in any other aspect of their life either. They're a free and independent person. So they're equal in that sense. And in the world before the Industrial Revolution, that was, if not probable, a plausible scenario for a good society. And indeed, the United States was seen as the place in the world where such a society could take root and flower. Then along came the Industrial Revolution. <laughs> and we ran out of land. We, yeah. we ran out of land to steal from the natives. Yeah. <laughs> we I stole mean, let's it keep all. in mind that the American model of a, of a society of free and equal persons was limited strictly to white men. And they got to pursue that ideal right at the gross expense of American Indians and of course, in the South, of uh, slaves. This is actually a deep part of the history of egalitarianism, though. And I want to stress that, is that the ideal of a society of equals always starts off being less than universal. And then you have the people excluded, right, have to start a social movement and say, hey, you know, here you're talking about these highfalutin universal principles, but I haven't been included. <laughs> Right. And, and you see that with the abolitionist movements, with the feminist movement. It's a demand to be included in this vision. And, and that typically requires an alteration of, of the vision that's being promoted. It's interesting. You, you focus in your book, you talk about ideology and how, you know, we have cognitive limit, limitations as humans that make us rely on ideology we talk about narrative a lot as a shortcut to make sense of the world. What's interesting is when you talk about, I assume you're talking about neoliberalism here, the ideology with which we're viewing the world now. Yes. It places a constraint on us that actually blinds us to the reality of the workplace. So if you could talk about how important it is to actually even just recognize that we're being ruled by ideology. Yes. So look, neoliberalism has a ideological rhetoric of free markets, right? That's where we're free and equal. And what I just described to you was historically how that could possibly be. And it could be on condition that everyone's self-employed. The Industrial Revolution wiped out most self-employed people. And indeed, if you look at the uh, statistical abstract in the United States, you can see that rates of self-employment have been steadily declining for well over a century in the United States. And now they're below rates of self-employment in uh, social democratic Norway. So that original vision doesn't work anymore, but, but neoliberalism keeps on talking as if we're all free and equal in the market because they haven't focused on the peculiar features of the labor market. The labor market's different from all over other markets. You know, if I sell my apples that I own to you, I walk away as free as before after my apples have been sold. 
But if I sell my labor to you and you're my employer, I cannot walk away from that transaction. What I've really contracted into is a relationship of subordination to my employer who now gets to order me around for most of the day. But it's even more striking than that in terms of the loss of liberty involved because under American labor law, the default presumption is a rule that's known as employment at will. And that means that the boss can fire you for any reason or no reason at all, just completely arbitrarily. And that entails that not only can employers order you around while you're at work, it means that your boss can fire you for stuff you did while you're off hours, off duty. Your boss can fire you because they don't like your, your entertainment preferences or, you know, they don't like your sexual orientation. Now, maybe in the latest Supreme Court decision, maybe they're, they're going to draw a line there. But in general, except for a few categories of discrimination, bosses can hire and fire people on any arbitrary grounds, and that gives them the scope to meddle with people's private lives. Right. You could fire me, Nick, for, let's say, my Twitter account. Yes. That, well, that become very, time, very close <laughs> many times. Yeah. 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 I tell you what, Nick, we, we've come close to firing you over your Twitter account. That's true. It's true. It's true. Uh, <laughs> uh, no, but that's actually really important because it, it means that employees can be coerced into showing up at campaign events, <laughs> right? Right. For, for the, you know, for, for candidates who are favored by their boss. It's very coercive. So expand on what you mean by private government, because it's such an important idea. So, you know, any multi-member organization like a firm or like a club is going to need a kind of constitution to it, right? A or- way of organizing itself so that decisions are made, can be made that govern the group. A government is private when the decision makers, the people who run that organization, keep stuff private from the people who are governed under the rules of that organization. So within the workplace, I call the default constitution of the workplace a private government because you know the C-suite can make decisions that determine how workers are gonna have to behave in the workplace. But the workers don't have any voice in that. They don't have any standing to complain unless they're represented by a labor union, which is only about 6% of private sector workers, right? They, they can't, they don't have any standing at all. And their interests don't really have to be consulted. So that's what makes it private is that the rules, the decision-making process is kept private from the people who are governed within that organization, right? It's, it's like, Louis the Fourteenth, l'état c'est moi, right? The state is me. I, you, you rabble out there, right? My subjects. You don't have anything to do with decision making. That's what Louis the Fourteenth is about. So the government was a private thing for him. It was his private business, and the subjects who had to follow his rules, right? They didn't have any say or standing at all. That sounds and- suspiciously familiar. Yeah. Like someone, someone I know who may be president now. <laughs> yeah. well, at least that's the way he, he thinks. But, 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 but Elizabeth, the alternative 
to a private government, you would say is a, a democratic government. Only in the broadest sense. Look, there's a lot of different ways to organize things. So if you're small enough, you could run the workplace as a participatory democracy, right? Where every worker is exactly equal and you all make decisions together. Once you scale up, that's really unworkable. You, are, you do need some kind of workplace hierarchy. Uh, I, I know this, look, I was chair of my department for five years, the philosophy. I'm sorry. So that, you know, that meant I actually became part of management, right? <laughs> and I was a boss for a while. And, you know, the thing about being chair of the department is there's a reason why they concentrate responsibility for running the department in one person. Because the truth is, is that most of the job of running the department is insanely bureaucratic and like professors don't want to have to deal with it. There's like tons of stuff. And so if you just had a committee, you could never get everybody on board to make these decisions. It's such a drag, <laughs> right? And, and so you're going to need some kind of hierarchy. Now, you know, within a university, the hierarchy is pretty loose, frankly, compared to most workplaces. But generally speaking, you are going to have a hierarchy of offices, but it doesn't preclude the workers having some kind of substantial voice in the system, even if they don't literally right, elect everybody. So a model that I find pretty attractive is uh, the German model of co-determination, which was established in Germany after World War II. And on that system, the workers elect almost half of the members of the board of directors of the corporation. And they also jointly manage the factory floor with representatives of, you know, capital interests. So it's a kind of collaborative mode of government where the workers have a say, both at the lowest level of organization as, as well as, you know, at the highest levels on the board. So they have a voice, yeah. but it doesn't mean that it's a full 100% democracy. Uh, of course, the, the neoliberal view is, well, I mean, if you don't like it, you can quit. So freedom. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, but the problem is, is that what are the options out there? And wherever you go, you're just entering another dictatorship. Right. So it's kind of like, suppose communist Eastern Europe before the, you know, the wall came down and the Iron Curtain came down. And they all decided, oh, yeah, we'll have free movement of workers, you know, between Romania and Poland and Czechoslovakia and so forth. It's like, OK, you get your choice now. Well, I'm sorry, like all the choices are bad, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I, I love your analogy, I think, in the, in the book, which was that, you know, just because you could emigrate out of Italy didn't mean that Mussolini wasn't a dictator. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and uh, I think that, yeah, in a high, particularly in a in a market environment which is as consolidated as America's, you know, the notion that you well, you know, freedom you can you can quit is just is ridiculous, and the ability to quit is not equivalent to the ability to fire the boss, most consequentially, yeah, yeah. right? Like there, like these relationships are not equivalent like because i have the legal right to leave the firm for whatever options i may be able to find and and the truth is that in in the current environment 
only a, a small fraction of workers have great alternatives if they should quit. You know, there are very, you know, if like if you're a if you're a top tier software uh, developer, yeah, you have a ton of options, but not if you're a, a mid-level employee in a, at, at, a, at an average firm. And so the power relations are very, very different. Absolutely. Yes. And of course, you know, if, if you look at the lowest tiers of workers, like uh, immigrant workers on agricultural worker visas, I mean, they're almost slaves. You know, yeah. they, no, absolutely. All kinds of abuses are heaped upon them because if they ever raised a hint of complaints, they would just be deported out of the country. So, Elizabeth, we are big fans of markets as long as they are well constructed. So, we believe that markets, if well managed, can be the greatest creators of both increasing prosperity, but also human happiness that the world has yet found. You know, there may be better models, but we have not yet seen them. But the way in which we have organized markets in the United States uh, is vastly imperfect. And the way in which we've allowed uh, radical inequality to seep into the, in, into the market system and this very, very troubling amounts of consolidation, all this sort of stuff means that the market actually isn't serving people. People are really serving the market. What I'm really interested in is, you know, how you see the glorious future. You know, if you could paint a picture of how you think the social, political, and economic system should work in the future, I'd lo we'd love to hear it. Tell us what you think we should do. Yeah. So I, I'm totally with you on the indispensability of markets and having generally open markets, competitive markets. But here's the thing, the, a rhetorical trick has been played on us when it comes to so-called free markets, okay? Because nowadays, in the hands of neoliberalism, free markets are defined as unregulated markets, that is markets that don't constrain the biggest players in the marketplace. Okay, whereas the original meaning of free markets, if you go back to Adam Smith, for whom I have endless admiration, you really should read him. <laughs> the Wealth of Nations mm -hmm. is one of the greatest books, but you got to read it in conjunction with his great work of moral psychology, The Theory of Moral Sentiments, which is a beautiful, one of the best books of moral philosophy ever written. Anyway, the rhetorical trick is this, to think that free markets are so-called you know, neoliberal markets are free markets, that is unregulated markets. And this is a complete confusion. Every market has needs regulations just to get off the ground. It's kind of like saying, I'm gonna have an unregulated baseball game. Let's just toss out the rule book and we'll play baseball. Well, I'm sorry, you know, <laughs> there is no game without rules, <laughs> right? It's the same with the market. Here's the other thing. Markets, as we know them today, are really creatures of social engineering. They're incredibly elaborate pieces of social engineering, and they've been engineered by the law. There's also norms involved, which are not legal, but are sort of just ways of going about doing things within the market. So that, say, for instance, if you were in the Middle East, you have to haggle over prices at every marketplace, 
Whereas in the United States, the norm outside of the medical field is that the prices are <laughs> stamped on the good, right? And if you end up haggling, you know you're going to get screwed, <laughs> right? And that's that's why our healthcare, that's how come the healthcare sector is not a market. And nobody should pretend that it's a market because in a market, you get, you know, the price ahead of time. Right. And markets cannot possibly function if you have to buy the good and only later they tell you how much it costs. Right. But that's the way our system is working now. And they call this, oh, yes, it would be like it would be horrible interference in the free market if we ran things any other way in the healthcare sector. Well, no, I'm sorry. That's not even a market at all. Right. You can't make decisions if you don't know what stuff costs. And for the vast majority of people, you have no idea what your healthcare is gonna cost until after you get something. And then suddenly they hit you with a $20,000 bill that most people right. can't afford. And, and even if you have insurance, you don't know what's covered and what isn't. No, it's impossible to tell. In fact, nobody knows until they do an elaborate investigation, right? Which of course inflates the cost of healthcare in the United States. That it, it takes an insanely costly system even to figure out what your bill is going to be. This is why everybody loves health insurance and car salesmen. <laughs> yeah, right, exactly. No, it's horrible. You know that you're going to get shafted because they know more than you do. Yeah. That's really the problem. You have radical asymmetrical information and people are taking advantage of you. So the point is, is that you can always write the roles of the market different. You can write the roles so that everybody actually gets value for money, where you actually need to have comp, you need to compete. So you should write the rules so that you can't just let monopolies flourish. Uh, and monopolies is one of the biggest problems we have these days, both in the employment sector and in all kinds of contracting sectors that people are only dimly aware of, say with franchises or even with chicken farmers. Right. Do you know what the contracts look like? Oh. For it's, it's, chicken farmers? Yeah, they're, they're basically serfs now. Yeah. No, and it, it's the most exploitive thing possible is that the farmer has to assume all of the risks. They have to buy all of their inputs at prescribed prices and even get the little chicks supplied to them by uh, the same party that buys all their products. So they're squeezed from both ends. And they're taking all the risks of bad weather and accidents and so forth. They make almost nothing. It's a scandal that such an arrangement is permitted. But in fact, it's absolutely pervasive. And we have this saying in, in tech, Apple, you know, wants to charge 30% of revenues. I think Grubhub thinks that it can't make a profit until it's grabbing 50% of restaurant revenues. Well, who's cooking the food? <laughs> Yeah. I don't even see how they could like, I, I don't even see how this business model could work because they're going to drive the restaurants out of business. Restaurants, you know, they're on very small margins. One of the points that you make that, that, is, uh, that I think is really important is that, you know, even in orthodox economics, they acknowledge that the, that the, the, mar the market itself stops at the firm. That is the border uh, the, uh, of the market, that there is no market within the firm. And as we empower the firm and they become bigger and more monopolistic, you actually have less market. That's exactly right. Yes. 
But even in these quasi-market relationships, the big players are so powerful, they're essentially dictating terms to the small par uh, parties. And so even though formally it's still a contractual relationship, there's very little room for maneuver, like in the chicken farmer example. Every last thing they do is dictated to them by, you know, Monsanto or yeah. whoever's doing the contract. They have almost no room to yeah. maneuver. But my point is, is that that's all a function of the way the rules were written. But there's millions of different yeah. ways to write the rules of the market. And you could write the rules so that instead of empowering just a handful of billionaires and people at the top, they can actually be empowering workers, small business people, right? The vast majority of people. Hear that, right. Nick? They could write the rules to empower me, not just you. <laughs> I know, I know. I'll take it under consideration. <laughs> we'll talk about it in your next review. <laughs> Uh, there you now, go. The biggest That's... scam in the world is to think that deregulation is a thing, right? It isn't a thing. There's regulations that favor the powerful people, and there's regulations that favor regular, ordinary people. But there's no such thing right. as a market without any regulations at all. Yeah, that's a great point. There is no such thing as deregulation. There's only who, who's getting more power and who's getting yeah. less power. So, so uh, speaking of dictatorships, uh, we like to ask the benevolent dictator question. Uh, I know you're a philosopher as opposed to a uh, policymaker, but if uh, uh, we appointed you benevolent dictator with uh, <laughs> absolute power, no, no political constraints whatsoever, what might you do to... Uh, make a uh, freer world for the typical worker? One thing would be to empower workers within the firm. And it doesn't necessarily mean that you have full democracy within the firm, but I think we should be tinkering with various models of co-determination and strengthen those models. But here's a second thing that I think would be worth doing. And that is enhancing people's access to property, to capital. Right now, our inheritance laws let you know billionaires just pass the billions down to their kids, virtually without constraint. But there's no real good reason for that. We could rewrite the inheritance rules so that most of it just gets redistributed as capital grants uh, to ordinary people. A couple of decades ago, uh, Bruce Ackerman costed this out and, and that was already like 20 or 30 years ago. And he figured you could give everyone a universal capital grant of $80,000. And I think that was around $1990, right? On a much smaller economy. Imagine what that would be today. It would be a big hunk of change. And, and one of the things we know now is that people's prospects are very heavily dependent, not just on their income flows at the moment, but on whether they have a fallback position, that is some savings, some capital, it makes a vast difference in people's well-being. Imagine if every kid got a capital grant, right, so that they could, you know, start out in life with some decent level of security. That would be pretty remarkable. And let me point out that the original architect of such a proposal was another great hero of mine, Tom Paine, the great American revolutionary actually proposed universal stakeholder grants for all young adults starting off in life. 
that would be collected from essentially property taxes or inheritance taxes on land, which was the main form of property in those days. What do you think, Nick? You're, you're, you've signed on to uh, the Giving Pledge. If uh, you and your fellow super rich would, instead of putting that money into charitable foundations, we just taxed it at 90% and uh, redistributed to it to uh, Americans? I have to say, I've never heard that particular idea, but it's very appealing. The direct transfer of wealth from the very wealthy to everyone else, I'm in total agreement with Elizabeth, it would be really, really good for people, but it would also be, yikers, a, a highly saleable political proposition. I think you can make a pro-market argument for this too. And that is, uh, if you're just going to redistribute this money to everybody else, uh, you know, the market's going to decide what to do with that money. Individuals are going to use it as they see fit. Some will waste the money away on uh, luxuries and others will invest wisely in themselves. And yeah. th that is a market deciding how that money should be spent as opposed to a handful of really rich people and the people they put in charge of their foundations after they die. That's right. Yeah. Well, Elizabeth, this has been a fantastic conversation. Ah, it's been and really fun. Again, Thanks for inviting me. Uh, we're, we're huge fans of your work and uh, feel really privileged to have gotten to chat with you about it. And when your new book is done, we would love to have you on talking about it. I'd love to come back. All right. Well, thank you. Thank you so much. Thanks. It was fun. Talk soon. Bye. Yeah. Bye. What's just so striking, Goldie, to me about her analysis is it is it it just underscores how crazy it is that when the CEO does it, it's an expression of freedom, but when the democratically elected governor does it, it's tyranny. How did we get there? <laughs> yeah, you know, you know how Nick. It's the stories we tell ourselves yeah. about the. Uh, the the way the world works. And I think, you know, I, I it's so overused, but, uh, you know, I'll, I'll bring up the matrix. You know, there's this idea, and, and yes, it's a, it's a provocative conceit she uses uh, in talking about private government and these, uh, she starts off that chapter essentially describing a communist dictatorship. And what she's describing is the profound unfreedoms of the workplace. But what she does is she opens your eyes to this thing we've been blinded to, which is that much of our, our lives are, are spent in this unfree condition. So I think it's really important for people to understand that we don't have to accept this, that there are different ways to govern the workplace and that the workplace is a kind of government in and it of itself. And yes. We can, and this is a theme we hit a lot, we can change the rules. Right. We can change the rules of the workplace. We can change the rules of the economy. It's not physics. And, you know, in a democracy, we can elect leaders who will pass different laws that will shift that balance of power a little bit back right. towards workers. And I think our strong view is if they did that, it wouldn't be bad for the economy. It actually would be good for it. 
Right, because it is uh, the market is uh, an institution that is based on pro-social behavior. That's right, and benefits from more participation, not less. Right, the- less consolidation, not more. Right, uh, higher wages, not lower wages, uh, and more innovation, not positive less. feedback loop is what we're talking about. Yeah, uh, the the more people that that can fully participate in the economy at all levels, the the faster and more prosperous the economy will grow, and for everyone, and that feeds back in on itself. Yeah, uh, and and so. You know, again, it's not a long book. It's actually, you know, uh, we say, oh, she's a philosopher. That must mean it's really difficult. It's not a difficult book. It's a a fascinating look at the history of market ideology and where we went wrong. And I highly recommend it. Absolutely. Pitchfork Economics is produced by Civic Ventures. If you like the show, make sure to subscribe, rate, and review us wherever you get your podcasts. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Civic Action and Nick Hanauer. Follow our writing on Medium at Civic Skunkworks and peek behind the podcast scenes on Instagram at Pitchfork Economics. As always, from our team at Civic Ventures, thanks for listening. See you next week.